Good morning, church. Thank you all for allowing me to gather with you guys. I'm going to get this like I like it. Uh, my name is Joel McCarty. I'm the pastor of Mission Life at a church in Athens, Alabama, Summit Crossing Community Church. And as Gabe mentioned, um, God has called me and my family to move here to Decatur. So we'll be doing that next summer and be a part of leading a church plant. And so we're excited to just join what God's already doing here. Um, I was able to preach here last year and at the time actually didn't know Gabe as well. But we've been able to spend time together and, and I love the heart that God has given you guys uh, to reach the city of Decatur, to be involved in the mission of God. And so we just want to join um, what God's already doing in gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches around the city of Decatur. And so we're super excited. So thank you guys for allowing me to step into your family today. Um, as Gabe mentioned, there's churches all around um, our country, all around the world, gathering to celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. And so it's a privilege any time to gather, but also when I have the opportunity to just expound God's word and to preach the word of God. Um, I know that y'all have been spending time, um, Gabe's been preaching a series called Everyday Courage. And so I'm just going to jump in and help close out that series for you guys today. We've been looking at some of the characters in biblical history. Um, I know one of the things we've been seeing in these stories is that these aren't superheroes. These aren't people that were given some kind of necessarily supernatural power beyond what we have access to today, but rather these were everyday normal people that were surrendered to King Jesus, to his mission, to God, and allowed him to use them in the everyday stuff of life. That's something I'm passionate about, is helping connect people and seeing disciples made in all of life, the everyday, the, the mundane seemingly, to see disciples made. Courage takes place in the everyday stuff of life. When we choose to surrender ourselves to King Jesus, that's why we were created, right? Um, we, were, we exist to see his glory displayed through our lives. Back in the garden when humanity was created to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And we're still on that same mission today. For us to exercise courage in the face of fear, though, it requires something called trust or faith. Right? We're not calling you guys to take courage and trust in something and just go live on a mission without having facts behind that and the fact of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. See, there's actually a fine line between courage and stupidity, right? If, if you have kids, you might understand this. Some of your kids are super courageous, but the reality is their faith in their own ability to not fall off the top of the playground is maybe not good faith. Maybe it's faith in something that's untrue and false. And so that's something we might call foolish, something we might call stupid, right? Um, so my three-year-old, she's a pretty courageous, fearless little girl. She's either going to rule the world one day or destroy it. I don't know which yet. We're going to figure that out. But she is just bold. She's sassy. We love her to death. And so for her, she might want something at the top of the pantry, a snack. You know, we put them there because they're not supposed to get them. And so she will take our little flimsy Paw Patrol table we have, you know, and then stack it there by the pantry and then take an even flimsier Paw Patrol little um, chair and put that on top of the table and start climbing up on top of this. And we could call that courage, but I would probably call it stupidity, right? She, first of all, has faith in some things that aren't that great. First of all, faith in this table that's not meant to climb up on, right? Like, that's not the point of that. It's to sit and hold a plate of food, not this little girl. And secondly, she has a lot of faith in her athletic balance and ability, which I've seen is not that great right now, right? And so she has faith in something that's not solid, that's not foundational. So as we move into our 
text today, what I want us to move past the idea that we should be courageous in following Jesus just simply because it's a good idea and I hope it works out and maybe gives me a better life here and now and things will be good till we pass over to the other side. See, we're called to be courageous in following Jesus because he is worth following. He is trustworthy. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And he will not call us to something that is not ultimately for our good and for his glory. We're going to be looking at a story today in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21, if you want to start moving there. We're going to actually look at two characters, very different in nature, very different people in their socioeconomic status, but both of them who did something amazingly courageous. Though if we don't understand the kingdom and the way Jesus works, it actually could have been considered foolish and reckless and most likely was by many people watching this story. So to start, I want to tell you just kind of a main goal that I have for our text today and for our time, and then we're going to move into this story. So my main goal for us today is to trust that King Jesus is sufficient for salvation and mission, and then to respond in courageous obedience. So when we leave today, I want us to trust that King Jesus is sufficient, he's enough for salvation and mission, and for us to then respond in courageous obedience. So let's walk through this story in Mark 5, and then afterwards we're going to look at what this story reveals about three things. First of all, ourselves. Secondly, what it reveals about God and Christ Jesus. And third, what it tells us or reveals about us as a church and the mission that God has given us. So let's look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, and we're going to read there. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jesus, he, Jairus, fell at his feet. And so our story begins with Jesus arriving on this shore, and there's this massive crowd around him, and in the midst of this massive crowd, we're introduced to our first character today in our story, Jairus. The text tells us that he was a ruler of the synagogue. This meant that he would have represented wealth and power in this culture. He had dignity. He had respect. People knew who he was when he walked in a room. And if you were reading straight through the book of Mark, just reading the gospel, by this point, by chapter 5 in the story, there's one thing you would know about religious leaders. They hated Jesus. He was here flipping over their system of power and control, and so they all hated Jesus. They didn't like the way Jesus was going about and the things he was doing. But something's different about this religious leader, Jairus. This is the first religious leader we see in the book of Mark that doesn't have a negative interaction with Jesus. And it's because something's happened in his life. Look at Mark 5, 23. He comes up to Jesus and says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. See, Jairus has been brought to this point in his life where he's full of utter desperation because his little girl, the one who he loves, is sick and dying. And so he comes in utter humility with one request, one thing on his mind for Jesus to heal this little girl. See, at this point in his life, he could care nothing about his status. He could care nothing about how undignified he might look, running up in desperation and tears to this man named Jesus. He doesn't care how it might affect his reputation with the other religious leaders who hated Jesus. The only thing he knew in this moment was that he was hurting and that he was in need 
of a savior, a healer. See, all of Jairus' religious training, all the passages of the Torah that he had memorized, all of the religious rules he had sought to follow meticulously, all the influence and power he now held in the community, in this moment, it meant absolutely nothing because those things did not have the power to make sick things well again. But this Jairus had heard about a man He heard rumors about this man, not another religious system, not a new law book, but a person. And some had even called him the chosen one, the Messiah, the one who's here to set up a kingdom. And he heard that this man named Jesus could heal. And so in desperation, with utter courage and with everything to lose, he throws himself at the feet of this man and begs him to come touch his daughter. And so we see in verse 24... That Jesus responds to this request of courage, and he begins to go with Jairus to Jairus' house. And the crowd tags along. They're now following Jesus, wanting to know what's going to happen in this situation. Probably murmuring. You can hear them talking. We're going to get to see a miracle. We've heard about this Jesus. What's going to happen? Jairus might even be a little nervous on the way because now he's having time to think, was this stupid or was this courageous? What if this doesn't work out? I've now forfeited my standing in this society. I've looked like an idiot if this doesn't pan out. Maybe he's a little nervous, wondering if they're going to make it to his little girl in time. And then in the midst of our story, Mark just stops. He does this a lot. And starts another story. Scholars call it a Mark and Sandwich. He's actually going to put this one story on hold, tell this story, and then come back and finish the story. And we're going to see how the two of them flow together. So in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, we read about this woman. This is the second character we're introduced to in our story. Look at Mark 5, 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. We see someone on the polar opposite end of the spectrum as our religious leader, Jairus, this outcast woman. Her situation is rather Bleak. She has this chronic disease, this endless hemorrhaging that had lasted for 12 years. She had been to many doctors and it had done no good. Most likely these doctors were not real doctors. They were quack doctors that would take advantage of her, ask for money, and then give her these superstitions to try to make her be well. And she had tried everything, just hoping to be made well. And what we need to understand is that there's so much more going on here than just her physical sickness. See, it's not like today where physical sickness necessarily will keep you from going out in society, but this was something that was a big deal in this culture. Leviticus chapter 15 specifically talks about a woman who is on her period or has a flow of blood. We won't read it for the sake of time, but it very clearly says that this person is unclean as well as anything she comes into contact with, and that she is not supposed to touch anything or anybody because then they too would become unclean. Now, unclean did not mean sinful. It just meant that you were not able to come into the temple area. And the religious leaders of this day had further manipulated this command and made it to where this woman was not even supposed to be inside the city gates or else she could be stoned. So because of this ongoing disease, there's this ripple effect for this woman. It's affecting her physically, yes, but also societally, economically, and mentally. Remember, she had now faced this for 12 years. This meant she would have been cut off from the broader community. She would have been seen as unfit for marriage 
which was often a way of life in this culture. She was also unable to bear children. So often, unfortunately, women's value was in whether or not they could bear children. And so she would have been seen as an outcast, as a nuisance. And simply in the way, it's no wonder Mark used the word suffered or tortured. That's what that word means here in Mark 5, 26. In this male-dominated society, women often were already powerless. But you take that and you combine it with the issues this woman was facing. And she was truly hopeless and powerless. But just like Jairus, word had gotten out about this man, this, this person, not another quack doctor, not another just supposed cure, but this person who could heal. And so in desperation, with amazing courage, with everything to lose, she says to herself in Mark 5, 28, if I touch even his garments, if I just touch his garments, I will be made well or whole. See, there's a difference here. Unlike Jairus, she doesn't have the cultural status to be able to walk face to face with this popular man named Jesus. So her idea is just to, within the anonymity of the crowd, she wouldn't even be able to show her face or they would call her out. She could be stoned to just come up. And if I could just, as he's walking by, just get close enough to touch the corners or the fringes of his garment, then maybe everything would be okay. Now, why would she say this about touching his garment? See, this is a popular story. We've heard this story, so it doesn't seem weird to us. But if you were reading this for the first time, why would we think that just touching his garment would, would have any kind of healing power? Why does she think this would work? Understand this. We need to go to Malachi chapter 4. This is the very last prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. And in Malachi 4.1, we read, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's two things in this verse I want you to notice that apply to our text today. First of all, the words son of righteousness here is a moniker that everyone would have known meant the coming Messiah. So the Messiah or the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And the word wings here is often translated in the Hebrew scriptures as corners or fringes. And there was this common understanding among the Jewish people that when the Messiah came that he would be so powerful over sickness, over death, that if you just even touch the corners of his garment, that would possess enough power to overcome sickness and pain. And that those who experienced this healing would go out leaping like calves from a stall, a newborn calf, just experienced life and loose to just run in their new found freedom. I love that imagery. And so again, she doesn't know if it's going to pan out. She doesn't know if it's going to work. She's risking her entire life. And so she comes up behind this man, Jesus, face hidden and with great courage. She touches him and immediately something is different. Remember, she had tried everything before. She knew that buildup of trying to experience something and then again it being empty and the emotional roller coaster. But this time, something is different because this son of righteousness truly did have healing in his wings. And so she gets her healing, and she has the mind to just slip back into the anonymity of the crowd and go back and figure out what her new life meant. But I love this. Jesus has so much more in mind than just her physical healing. He does not let her go. He has other plans. So you can imagine the scene, right? The crowd is still exciting and murmuring to see 
Jesus deal with Jairus' daughter. At this point in the text, like, they don't know that this has all happened. They're just there kind of moving along. Only Jesus and her know that something's going on. And so Jesus stops suddenly and he says, who touched my garments? I can imagine this woman. She's experienced her healing. She's trying to get out of there and she hears Jesus stop. And the fear that wells up inside of her. Remember, she's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be touching any man, any person, let alone a rabbi, a religious leader, because whoever she touches is now considered unclean. And if the crowd finds out, they would know that everyone who she had bumped would now be considered unclean, and she literally could have been taken outside the city and stoned. But she knows that something is different about this man. And so look at Mark 5.33. I love this. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, something's different, I've been changed, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Isn't this everyday courage? In fear and trembling, threw herself on the mercy of this man, not knowing the outcome, but she takes what she knows. She takes the little faith that she has in this man and she operates on it and risks it all courageously. You can imagine the disgust of those around her as she tells the whole truth, that she was unclean. You can imagine them backing away with disgust, now wondering if they're too unclean and if this woman had touched them and they would be unclean, backing away in disgust, trying to figure out what's going on, maybe even gearing up and getting ready to throw out accusations and maybe take her outside the city and stone her. But then we see Jesus. And instead of moving away, from her, he begins to move toward her. This woman, who most likely was just laying on the ground with guilt and shame, trembling and in fear, he begins to move toward her. And the whole crowd is watching this man, Jesus. What will he say? And in Mark 5, 34, Jesus chooses his words carefully. And the first word he says to her is, daughter. Jesus sees this outcast woman, this one who had been rejected by society, who had been kicked outside of the city. He sees her as family, and he calls her daughter of God. And then he goes on, because again, he has more in mind than just her physical healing. He says, your faith, your trust has made you whole or well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, when everyone else sees hopeless, when everyone else sees powerless, when everyone else sees outcast, Jesus sees family. And he takes this woman who was full of shame and guilt that nobody else wanted, and he gives her a place in the kingdom of God, and not just a place of servitude, but a place of family, daughter of God, a new identity. Because when this physician comes on the scene, he doesn't just heal physically, he heals every part of us. He tells you, tells her, go in peace, literally walk into your shalom. I've made you completely whole. And he gives her a place of honor and dignity in front of everyone, because that's what this king does. There is truly healing in the wings of this son of righteousness. And it's even more complete than this woman could have ever dreamed. Can you see her? The crowd continues on to Jairus's house. 
and this woman, the crowd goes on their way, and she turns around and heads home. No one's watching. Maybe she gets around the corner, and full of joy, she starts skipping like a little girl down the path, or maybe we could say like a newborn calf, full of life and loosed from its stall to run in freedom. This woman is healed. But what about Jairus? What about this little girl who's sick and dying? We're told in Mark 5.35 that while he was still speaking, so while this interaction is still going on with Jesus and this woman, there come from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? I mean, can you, can you imagine Jairus now? I mean, he had to be asking a lot of questions. This woman was experiencing this chronic disease 12 years. My little daughter's dying. Just take care. I mean, you know if you work in the emergency room, take care of, of those needs first, right? Like we, don't, we don't deal with that. We can deal with that later. Jesus, my little girl's dead. He's told not to even bother the teacher anymore. His situation has now become hopeless too. I mean, Jairus had heard that this, this man, Jesus, could heal sickness, but death... That's different. Death is final. Death is complete. Death is undefeated. Or is it? Jesus overhears this conversation. I love this. Of, of them telling Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. And so in verse 36, he encourages him. He gives him courage that he did not previously have. And he says in Mark 5, 36, do not fear. Don't fear. Only believe. Only trust. Mark is intentional with the wording he uses here. This word believe is the same word we see when Jesus said that this woman had great faith. He is encouraging Jairus. This beautiful upside down way of the kingdom. Jairus is the one who was normally looked to as the model of spirituality, the religious leader. And he's instead encouraged to look to this outcast woman as his model for faith, as his model for courage. And so they head on to the little girl's house. They get there. There's mourners all around. Jesus sends them out, and he does something very silently as opposed to the public show of the woman he had just healed and dignified. And so it's just Jesus and a few of his disciples and the family. And in Mark 5.41, he takes this little girl by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. He does a couple things here that would have been shocking. First, he again violates the Jewish law by touching this dead corpse, which would have again been considered unclean. Jesus doesn't care. He's better than the old covenant. And under the old covenant, when clean came into contact with unclean, clean would become unclean, but not with Jesus. He flips the script. And when clean touches unclean, unclean becomes clean. And then he says to this little girl, Talitha kum. We don't fully understand this phrase as it's given to us in English. But this word, little girl, I say, it's a term of endearment. It's a term like I would say to my three-year-old daughter, honey, little girl, hey, how are you doing? Honey. And then he says, get up. I mean, this, this is literally in the translation, like I would say to my little girl to get up from a nap. He awakes this girl from the clutches of death with the same power that I walk into my little girl's room on a Sunday afternoon and say, hey, girl, get up. It's time to go play. This is the power of this man, Jesus. And she obeys the voice of this king. She gets up and starts walking. 
her healing is completely whole. Jesus actually says, it's thrown in there, I think it's really cool, he said, get her something to eat. Like, okay, she's hungry, like she's been dead, get her something to eat. Like, but I think it's showing us that this healing is completely whole, right? Like she's ready to get up and eat. It's not a half healing, it's full and complete. And Jairus' courage, just like our unnamed woman's, is at last vindicated. And through the tale of these two very different characters, Jairus, the male religious leader, and this unnamed outcast woman, we've seen courage, obedience, and trust illustrated in a powerful and beautiful way, even in the face of desperate hopelessness. And, and I hope you're beginning to see that Jesus is a king that receives, that he restores, and that he responds to our acts of courage, boldness, and trust. And so now that we've seen these two characters, I want to ask three questions. The first one, what does this story reveal about us as individuals? Secondly, we're going to ask, what does this story reveal about God in Christ Jesus? And third, what does this story reveal about the church and its mission? So first of all, what does this story reveal about us, every single one of us as individuals? I hope as we've gone through the story, you've maybe been able to see yourselves yourself in one of these characters. Maybe for you, you see yourself in the story of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. This is my story. Maybe, maybe you've grown up religious. Maybe you've been in church from the moment you were a little kid. Maybe you can quote scripture. Maybe you know all the right things to say. Maybe even in the community, you're considered moral and upstanding. You're the one that people would look to and say, that person is closest to God, and he's a model example, or she is a model example of spirituality and faith and trust, but deep down, you know better. You know that deep within, you're full of doubts and hurting, and that when you've been punched in the face by life, you had nowhere to go. Maybe you've walked through suffering, through loss, and you know that your religion could do nothing to save you, that your morals are helpless in the face of sickness and death and loss and pain, and that when cancer, miscarriage came knocking on your door, whatever it is for you, that the only scriptures you found yourself quoting were the ones that questioned God's goodness, not that affirmed it. You're the furthest thing away from having a courageous heart. You know that your religion can't truly bring life from death, and if you're still trusting in your religion, I pray you find soon that it is powerless to save because that is the best thing for you. Or maybe you relate more closely to this woman with the discharge of blood. Maybe you don't know much about religion other than what you've kind of heard and you've caught from the culture around you in our southern context. Maybe you've even been excluded from religious communities based on your social status your disabilities, the color of your skin, your marriage status, or one of many other factors. No, they didn't have a sign on the door that said you're not welcome here, but you saw it in the faces every time you tried to come. You've gone to philosophies of this age to look for belonging because the church didn't have them for you. You went looking for healing, saving, and wholeness, and every time you've tried it, but it's come up empty. There's been nothing to bring you life from your situation of death, and maybe you even feel mocked by these worldly philosophies, feel taken advantage of and used because they tell you, we have the answer. But every time, there's just more suffering and more torment, and you know up close and personal that you're powerless and without hope. Again, you're the furthest thing away from courageous. No one needs to convince you to be humbled. You see it every day when you look in the mirror. And you see that face that's disappointed you time and time again, and you look at the mess of a life, 
you've been given, full of shame and guilt. See, through these two very different characters, we learn one common thing about all of humanity, that every single one of us, no matter what outward experiences seem to show us, all of us are broken and in need of healing. No matter your social status or your place in culture, everybody needs a savior because we are all powerless to save ourselves. It doesn't matter if you find yourselves on Sunday morning every time in the four walls of a church building or maybe laid up in a motel room with used needles on the floor trying to escape your misery and numb your life of pain. Every single one of us need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And here's the good news. That's exactly what Jesus does. The most courageous thing you can do is not to white knuckle it, not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and try to finally figure it out and muster up strength and courage from within, but rather surrender yourselves to this good king who takes our weakness and in our weakness, he then reveals his strength. That brings us to the second question we want to answer from this story. What does this reveal to us about God in Christ Jesus? See, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see the exact imprint of God's nature. We see how God functions. This shows us that God is compassionate and powerful and that he receives the most unlikely into his kingdom. Those that have finally been humbled by their brokenness and finally stopped turning to religion or those who never had anywhere else to turn and come to Jesus. And they courageously throw themselves on the mercy of this king, asking him and hoping for him to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And this king receives them, restores them, and responds to that courage and puts them back to where they were created to be. See, I love this because in him bringing these two polar opposite people into his family, he's showing us that he's creating a new humanity. He's creating a new people that are here based on the trust of the work of this Jesus, not on their own status. This humanity is made up of the most unlikely of people. And that's good news for those of us who have ears to hear because that means that you and me are welcome into this kingdom. We also learn that this God is quick to save and quick to heal. And that I love this. We have to get this. It doesn't even require full and perfect faith, full and perfect courage. You don't even have to fully understand everything about the way his kingdom works. You don't fully have to understand what it really means for him to have healing in his wings. This woman didn't fully understand all that. But she operated on what she knew, and that's what we're called to do, to act on the little bit you've been given, the faith you have to operate on that and to courageously respond to the message of the kingdom and throw yourself on his mercy. See, Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves in the way that he had perfect courage and faith on our behalf. When he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, he shows us his perfect courage, even in the face of death. He exercised perfect trust in his father on the cross when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit right before he dies and says, I fully trust you, God. Father, I trust you through shame and death. I know you'll be my dignity. I know you'll be my delight. I know you'll vindicate me. The resurrection is coming. And because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, We know that it's worth it to give everything you have, that it's worth it to lose all of your status, to come face to face with this king and ask him for help, to courageously forfeit your place or standing in society 
and throw yourself on the mercy of this king, or if all you can do is come to him crawling, ashamed, hiding, and hurting to just touch the fringe of his garment to this king, that's enough to praise God. This is the beauty of the gospel. Healing awaits. See, here's the thing. Here's the part of the story we don't think about. This woman who was healed would one day die. This little girl who was raised from the dead, guess what? She was going to die again. But this king, this Jesus, knew that on the cross and in the resurrection, he was going to deal with sin, sickness, and death finally and completely. See, just as this woman was shunned, And cast outside the city, left alone and forsaken, seen as unclean because of the flow of her blood. So Jesus willingly was crucified outside the city. He became unclean. He was numbered with thieves, left alone and forsaken by his father. So that we would never have to be. The flow of his blood is what brings us ultimate healing. Him being cast outside the city is what allows us to be welcomed back into his kingdom with rejoicing and celebration. His blood gives us forgiveness of sins, and by his stripes, we truly are completely and wholly healed. He is the true son of righteousness who has healing in his wings, but but in the gospel, we don't get to just touch the fringes of his garment. We get to be wrapped in his robes of perfect righteousness, fully covered, and we're loose to go skipping the freedom of Christ like calves loose from a stall. This is good news for the broken and for the hurting. He is here. He's the one who, when holding our hand, like he held the hand of this little girl, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. He deals with death finally and completely. And we know and we trust. This is where our courage comes from. We trust that in the last day that we will be raised again to new life just like Christ was. He's the first fruits. There's more coming. And that's you and I, the church. So we draw near to him. This God that once could only be accessed through rituals can now be accessed through the blood of Jesus personally. The veil has been torn. And so we hold fast our hope, not because of our religion, not because we have perfect courage, but because he who has promised is faithful. And so when we get that, we respond in courageous obedience. And that leads us to our last point. What does it reveal about the church and its mission? What what if this is all true? What if what Jesus does in the cross and resurrection is true? How does it begin to change and transform the way we live and the way our hearts are? See, when we realize that we were the broken, we were the hurting, we were the outcast, none of us earned our way, none of us were finally good enough for Jesus to say, yes, I want that person, bring them into my kingdom. They'll really help me out. No, you were broken, you were hurting, you were the one who was desperate, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, and he brings us in, and then you know what he does? He says, go back out and spread my kingdom, spread my message that outcasts are welcome here, and who better to do that than a bunch of outcasts? Who better to be a testimony and a witness to the broken and the hurting of this world that you are welcome here because of Jesus than a bunch of broken and hurting people? And we don't stop there. We also welcome in the religious that have finally come to the end of themselves and seen how empty and powerless that is. And they look for Jesus and we say, come on, you're welcome here. Just leave your religion at the door. See, the world might think us foolish as we live out lives this way. 
The Apostle Paul said that. He recognized that. If not for the resurrection, we're of all men most to be pitied. If the world doesn't get the way of the kingdom, they should look at us and, and see foolishness sometimes. But the resurrection did happen. And Jesus has promised to vindicate our acts of love. The resurrection did take place. It's a, it's a historical fact. See, Jesus is not some flimsy Paw Patrol table that we're just teetering on. No, he's the cornerstone who promised to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's where our courage comes from. The foolishness of this world is the wisdom of God. And so as we live out pictures of what Jesus did in the cross and resurrection in our everyday stuff of life, the way we love others, the way we interact with others, in the everyday stuff, we show this beautiful picture and we trust that God's going to turn this love into something amazing, if not in this life, in the next. I have a friend. He's actually... Um, goes to our, our church here in Athens, and one day we were in the office together. He's on our staff, and this young man came in without a home, struggling with addiction, was just asking for help, and so we were taking him through our process of helping people and trying to help people holistically. That's how we try to do We want them to have help emotionally. We want them to have community on this journey. So we begin to walk with this, this man, and he didn't have a place to stay, didn't have a job. We helped him get a job. And I watched my friend just love this young man well, his family. They ended up taking him into their home. They have a young little boy. I mean, it, it wasn't easy. Let him live with them for five months. He's getting back on his feet. He has this job. He's saving up money to take care of some stuff that he had to deal with. And I just watched this family time and time and time again give up date nights and give up things that they had and give up trips that they had planned to just love and pour and care for this young man. And, and you know what? I wish I had a, a great ending to the story. I don't. The young man at some point fell back into his addiction, got frustrated, got angry, and left. We haven't heard from him in a few months. But here's the thing. As we processed and we prayed, we were trusting that that faithful obedience to love, that God is going to vindicate that, that one day we're going to see the ripple effects of just faithful everyday obedience to what God's called us to, that everyday courage, that that is working, this suffering that they walked through and their family walked through, walking with this young man, that that was working a beautiful, glorious just beautiful life that one day will be vindicated in the new creation. And that the Father was receiving glory this whole time as we live out the pictures. Do we trust Jesus in this? Do we believe that he's sufficient for the task that God has called us to? Do we believe that he is king everywhere and that he's claiming his territory and that he's entrusted us to be his courageous ambassadors? How do we expect people to believe in a God who will draw near to them if we don't? So let us be that church. I pray that you guys are that church here in Decatur, Alabama, that goes and welcomes in the outcast just like you've been welcomed in. See, in the midst of this broken world, the kingdom of God says that there is a remedy for the brokenness, that this king is sufficient to save he will accomplish his mission, and he's compassionate, powerful, and he responds to our courageous trust in him. So 
Let us draw near to this king. Let us receive with open arms those who have ears to hear. When they come looking for Jesus, let's give them that. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's give them the good news of Jesus and let's be encouraged. King Jesus is claiming his territory, church, and he will not fail. So may we walk boldly into a lost and hurting world with the good news of this king. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Gosh, as we see you and your glory revealed just in the face of Christ Jesus, as we see the way you operate, the way you reach out and relentlessly pursue those of us that are hurting and scared and that there is a place for us here. It's not about us finally getting it right and and being perfect and having enough faith or trust, but rather it's about you and the way you pursue us. And so you just call us to just take what we have, take what we know and throw ourselves on you. I pray for those in here that have maybe been hurt by the church, that they would see you as beautiful and throw throw themselves on your mercy. For those that maybe have felt outcast, they would see that they're welcome in your kingdom. That maybe for the first time today, there's people in here who have not trusted in you for their salvation, for their healing, for their wholeness, complete, that we would see people converted today. We would see lives changed and dead men live. I pray that we would worship you, King Jesus. And as a result of that worship and beholding your glory, we would be transformed and we would be a people that walk in the way you walked, that live in the way you lived and reach out to those around us with open arms, trusting that even if it doesn't work out in this life, even if we get burned, even if we get taken advantage of, that you will make all things new and that your glory and your resurrection will vindicate us in the end. We love you, King Jesus, and we trust you with our life and our hearts. Amen.